great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the lost, the mysterious, and the murdered. The 2014 Royal Canadian Mounted Police overview on murdered and missing women showed that police were able to solve about 90% of all murders in missing persons cases that crossed their desks. Portage La Prairie is a suburb of Winnipeg, Manitoba. For American listeners, Manitoba is directly north of North Dakota and in the center of Canada. Portage has a population of approximately 13,000 people, and about 25% of those people are Aboriginal. The province of Manitoba has a population of 1.2 million, with nearly half of those people living in or around Winnipeg. Portage La Prairie is located 75 kilometers, or 47 miles, west of Winnipeg on the Trans-Canadian Highway. The area is a transportation hub, both because it's on the river, meaning many boats moving cargo, and it is an intersection of Canada's railways, scores of trains and trucks moving goods and people through the region. If this brings to mind the Highway of Tears, we aren't going there today. Perhaps we will visit that part of Northwest Canada in a future episode. On this episode of Already Gone, we will review the cases of three women who went missing from Manitoba between June and October of 2008. Two from Portage La Prairie and one from Winnipeg. It was nearly 1 a.m. on Saturday, October 18th, when Amber McFarlane was spotted on a video camera at the Midtown Motor Inn on Saskatchewan Avenue in Portage La Prairie. On the tape, you could see she is in the company of two men. They'd stopped at the beer vendor to make a purchase. The group appears relaxed and at ease. This is the last confirmed sighting of Amber McFarland. 24-year-old Amber was born to parents Lori and Scott McFarland. She's the twin sister to Ashley and older sister to Lisa. Amber was working and attending school. From all appearances, her life was pleasant and carefree. In the spring of 2008, just months before she vanished, her life was more complicated. Amber had some trouble with a boyfriend. He assaulted her, and Amber filed charges against him. She put a no-contact order in place, which is the Canadian equivalent of what we in the U.S. call a restraining order. Amber moved out of the home they'd shared and back to her family. She enrolled in college courses, had a steady job, and by the fall of 2008, her family felt she'd moved on from this toxic relationship. Amber was a manager at Mark's Work Warehouse, a Canadian retail store. Her disappearance was first noted when she didn't show up for her shift. Amber was a responsible employee, and when she didn't arrive to open the store and let in co-workers, her mother, Lori McFarlane, received a phone call. Not showing up for work was out of character for Amber. Her parents tried unsuccessfully to reach her, and when she didn't answer her phone, they began placing calls to her friends. 
Eventually, the police were notified, and the search for Amber McFarland began in earnest. The community rallied. Searches were organized. One week after she went missing, the weekend of October 24, 2008, hundreds of people were working with Manitoba Search and Rescue looking for the missing woman. Searchers were also looking for 18-year-old Jennifer Ketchaway, who disappeared in June of 2008 and was also from Portage La Prairie. Ketchaway was traveling home to celebrate her 18th birthday with her parents and siblings. She never arrived. 18-year-old Jennifer is Aboriginal, and her disappearance is not thought to be connected to Amber's case. Days went by with no news, no sightings. October turned to November, and harsh Manitoba winter set in. Winnipeg is one of the coldest big cities in the world and sees, on average, 132 days a year with snow on the ground. When the temperatures dropped and the weather became hazardous, searches were postponed until spring. As I mentioned earlier, Portage La Prairie is located outside of Winnipeg. The city is surrounded by farmland, giving searchers a wide area to cover. The province itself is nearly 60% forests and home to thousands of lakes. If you were looking to hide a body, there are many locations to do so. As October drew to a close, the McFarland family posted a $20,000 reward for Amber's return. On November 1st, 2008, nearly 1,500 people turned up to help search for McFarland and Ketchaway. This was the largest organized search in Manitoba history. People searched on foot, on horseback, and on ATVs. Horses and dogs were brought in to aid in the search efforts. No trace of either woman was found. Investigators from the RCMP learned that Amber was seen at the Cat and Fiddle nightclub and later spotted on surveillance tapes buying beer with two men. Investigators from the RCMP learned that Amber was seen at the Cat and Fiddle nightclub and later she was spotted on surveillance tapes buying beer with two men. The recording shows Amber, pretty and smiling, Nothing appears out of the ordinary. You would not know that she was hours away from vanishing. The hotel surveillance tape is the last confirmed sighting of Amber McFarland. The evening of October 17th, perhaps while at the Cat and Fiddle, a nightclub on Saskatchewan Avenue, Amber ran into someone she knew. She would be seen with him on the video. It was a former boyfriend, Kelly Colin Garrick. With him was Garrick's friend, Graham Saxon. The two men spent a couple of hours chatting with Amber, but Saxon claims he drove Garrick and McFarland to Garrick's house and left. Saxon went home by himself and went to sleep. Saxon's story fits with Amber's car being found undisturbed at the hotel where she'd left it earlier in the evening. Remember how I mentioned that Amber had problems with a former boyfriend and filed assault charges against him? A boyfriend that she was afraid of, so she put a no-contact order in place? That boyfriend was Kelly Garrick. Back in May 2008, Garrick was charged with assaulting Amber McFarland and driving while disqualified. If you aren't familiar with the term, driving while disqualified refers to someone who is driving on a suspended license or operating vehicle without a driver's license. After Garrick assaulted her May 22nd, Amber filed a no-contact order against him. This meant Garrick was to stay away from Amber not to call her, speak to her, or frequent her home, school, or place of work. A no-contact order prohibits them from texting the victim or having any contact with the victim's family. 
Again, this is very similar to the restraining orders used in the United States. Due to video evidence from the hotel on October 17th, in January of 2009, Kelly Garrick pled guilty to breaching the no-contact order that McFarlane had filed against him. He also pled guilty to an October 14, 2008 offense to breaching another no-contact order. Two different women he'd been romantically involved with had no-contact orders against him in 2008. It's worth mentioning that McFarland disappeared just three days after Garrick violated the no-contact order filed by his daughter's mother. According to the Crown, both charges from May of 2008 relied on evidence from Amber McFarland. Without her testimony, the prosecutor couldn't continue the case. In January 2009, the Crown was forced to withdraw the charges. Should Amber become available to testify, the charges of assault and driving while disqualified could be reinstated. At the time of Amber's disappearance, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police searched Garrick's residence. He'd moved to a new home in December of 2008, and they searched this residence as well. The yards at both locations were dug up. Nothing useful to the investigation was discovered. In July of 2009, months after Amber vanished, police took Saxon and Garrick into custody, grilling them about Amber's whereabouts. Yes, Graham Saxon said, yes, that was him on camera with McFarland and Garrick. He had not known Amber before being introduced to her that evening. Saxon told the Winnipeg Free Press he didn't know Amber except through Kelly Garrick, and while he did drive the two of them to Garrick's house that night, he did not accompany them into the house. Saxon went home and went to sleep. He claimed to have no knowledge of what happened after leaving them at Garrick's home. While in custody, Saxon took and passed a lie detector test. We talked about the validity of lie detector tests in Episode 6. Polygraphs are not the most reliable tool for determining guilt or innocence. But in this case, Saxon's story didn't waver. He had no previous relationship with Amber McFarland. Garrick was a friend of his, but not a close friend. He dropped them off at Garrick's house and went home. The RCMP believed Saxon's version of events. Garrick corroborated Saxon's story, saying Saxon dropped him and Amber at his house in the early morning hours. Amber needed to go to work in the morning, so she called another unknown friend for a ride and left, alive and well. I was unable to locate information as to what Amber's cell phone records revealed about her actions that night. I can tell you that her phone, like her bank accounts, showed no activity after October 17th. The RCMP didn't have enough information to charge Saxon or Garrick. They were released. July 28, 2009 was Amber's 25th birthday, and the first birthday that her twin, Ashley, would celebrate without her. The day came and went with no sign of the missing woman. Amber's family spent the day papering the city with missing posters, hoping someone would see them and lead Amber home. In October of 2009, Saxon told the press that the RCMP no longer considered him a person of interest in the case. He offered his sympathy and prayers to the McFarlands. Quote, Amber's family has endured unthinkable horror over this past year, and my sympathy goes out to them. I pray for her safe return each day. Saxon's comments are an interesting contrast to Garrick's comments. 
in June of 2009, where he talks about how hard the investigation has been for him. Quote, my life has been horrid. Garrick went on to apologize to the new owners of the home he once shared with Amber McFarland for being put out by the search. Nothing addressing Amber's family or loved ones. No concern for the whereabouts of a missing woman. Amber's car was recovered where she'd left it in a hotel parking lot. The car provided no clues as to her whereabouts. Her purse, keys, and cell phone were never found. At the time of her disappearance, Amber was five foot seven inches tall, about 130 pounds, with light brown hair and green eyes. She was wearing a short sleeve black sweater and jeans. On our webpage, www.alreadygonepodcast.com, you can find additional photos of Amber. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police Historical Case Unit is treating Amber's disappearance as an unsolved homicide, and they welcome any information about the case. Because Amber has not been seen, and her phone and bank accounts are untouched, the RCMP believes that her case is a homicide. They specifically stated that the public should not assume that the RCMP has all of the details surrounding Amber's disappearance. If you know something that may be useful to the investigation, please call them at 204-984-6447 or 204-857-4445. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Portage La Prairie are looking for the public's assistance regarding the disappearance of Amber Lynn McFarland. Amber was out with friends at a nightclub in Portage La Prairie. Video surveillance from this nightclub captured her leaving the beer vendor area with two men in the early morning hours of Saturday, October 18th. Despite massive search efforts, 24-year-old Amber McFarland has not been seen or heard from since. If you have any information, please call Manitoba Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Callers will remain completely anonymous, and you may be eligible for a cash award of up to $2,000. While Amber's case is probably not related to the high incidence of missing Aboriginal women in Manitoba, there are some startling numbers coming out of the province. It's estimated that 75 Aboriginal women have disappeared in Manitoba in the last two decades. Statistics Canada reports that between 1997 and 2000, homicide rates of Aboriginal females were almost seven times higher than those of non-Aboriginal females. 30% of Aboriginal women are murdered by an acquaintance, and nearly a quarter of them are murdered by a family member. Manitoba, where the highest percentage of Aboriginal women live, has seen more than its share of tragedy. Jennifer Ketchaway was a few days shy of her 18th birthday when she left a note for her parents saying she was traveling to see her cousin and would be back soon. Jenner's first family wasn't worried. They figured she'd gotten a ride with a friend to see someone in Winnipeg. On the morning of her birthday, she called home to say she'd be back in time for the party. When she didn't return in time for the party, her parents were concerned. Jennifer's favorite meal went uneaten, her birthday cake uncut. They figured Jennifer would call or come home the next day. A day or two later, Jennifer's mother, Bernice Ketchaway, got a call from the woman married to Jennifer's uncle. Concerned by what she was hearing, Bernice went to the Winnipeg RCMP and reported her daughter missing and shared her concerns. Jennifer was a responsible girl. 
loyal to her family, Jennifer wouldn't just run off like this. The constable asked Bernice Ketchaway, How old is she? And when he learned that she'd just turned 18, he said, Eh, give it a week or two. She's probably out on a drunk. Weeks would pass before police took a report on the missing teen. Jennifer was not old enough to drink, and her parents reported her missing to the police who shrugged off their concerns. Mary Starr, Ketchaway's 30-year-old sister, was more direct, saying that if Jennifer were white, the police would be out looking for her. Needless to say, the RCMP's response was not what the Ketchaway family hoped. Tracking Jennifer's cell phone revealed the call she'd placed to her mother on the morning of her birthday came from Grand Rapids, Manitoba, a town nearly six hours north of the family home in Portage La Prairie. Jennifer has family in Grand Rapids, her uncle and some cousins. During their investigation, RCMP came across photographs that showed Jennifer at a party in Grand Rapids around the time of her birthday. In addition to the pictures, people confirmed Jennifer's presence at the party on the Dakota TP Reserve. It's rumored that she took a ride with two men in a van at some point following the party. It sounds like she may have taken the ride with the understanding they would bring her home to Portage. The last known people to be seen with Ketchaway were her uncle, Charles Parenteau, and her cousin, Sean Ketchaway, who were picked up by police and later released without being charged. Parenteau's pickup was also seized, then released back to him. Her parents made several trips to the area over the last eight years. Because Jennifer was last seen in an area 440 kilometers, or about 270 miles from her home, her family is seeking donations to pay for gas as they travel to the area to search. Jennifer's mother has set up a GoFundMe account to help with their expenses as they look for their daughter. I have provided a link on the podcast webpage. When the Catchaway family are low on funds, they sleep in tents rather than in a motel so they can keep searching. Instead of going on summer vacations, the family looks for their daughter, roaming through bushes, marshes, and open fields. They've come across bones on two separate occasions, only to learn the bones weren't human. The Ketchaway family made public their frustrations with the RCMP. If the case had been looked into immediately, if the constable hadn't decided that Jennifer was spending the week drinking, perhaps their daughter could have been found. In October 2015, Lori McFarlane, the mother of Amber McFarland, joined the Ketchaway family on the Dakota Teepee Reserve as they excavated the garbage dump in the hopes of finding their daughter. Who wants to find their child in a garbage dump? Nobody wants that, said Bernice Ketchaway. But on the other hand, I'll take her. I'll take her wherever she is. Jennifer Ketchaway was 18 years old at the time of her disappearance. In June of 2008, she was five foot seven, with long brown hair and hazel eyes. If you know something useful to the investigation, please call Manitoba Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's T-I-P-S. Jennifer Ketchaway would be 26 this month. Pictures and links to Jennifer's case are on our website. We loved her and she loved us and she wouldn't just leave. 
it's it's not easy, you know. Even though it's people say time heals, there's no healing here yet. Not until we bring her home. Jennifer Catchaway disappeared June 19th, 2008. That was also exactly her 18th birthday. Her family says that's what makes the disappearance all the more suspicious. A big party was being planned. Her mom bought special steaks, her favorite meal uh, requested for that evening. And they just don't think she would have taken off and vanished into thin air on her own. The family is desperate for answers and begs anyone with tips to please come forward. It's been... These were not the only women who went missing from the Winnipeg area in 2008. 21-year-old Claudette Osborne went missing on July 25th. Claudette is Aboriginal and a mother of four. Her last known location was at a payphone outside the Lincoln Motor Hotel on McPhillips Street near Mountain Avenue in Winnipeg. There has been no trace of Osborne ever since. Claudette Osborne struggled with drug use and had a history of prostitution. After the birth of her child in 2008, she was engaged to Matthew Bushby and worked hard to keep her life together and stay clean. She had her struggles, but Claudette was trying. She had a partner who loved her and a young family. She was young and beautiful and full of promise. Unfortunately, she fell off the wagon and was in the wrong part of Winnipeg when she vanished. When Bushby reported her missing, he was told by the RCMP that she would be back when the money ran out. Two weeks later, when the RCMP finally began investigating her case, their best lead was no longer available. Security footage from the Lincoln Motor Hotel, her last known location, had been recorded over. Claudette appears to have joined others in her family who fell prey to evil. Claudette's cousin, 17-year-old Helen Betty Osborne, was sexually assaulted before being stabbed to death with a screwdriver in 1971. Helen Betty had moved off the reserve to finish high school. She lived with a local family in the Paz, a small town in the northwest part of Manitoba. The mutilated remains of the petite girl were discovered near Clearwater Lake on November 13, 1971. It took 16 years for the RCMP to bring her murderers to justice. Even though the four white teens who took turns raping and stabbing her had bragged to friends about the killing. Local police said they were unable to determine who had dragged the woman into a car, subdued her as she struggled, and stabbed her repeatedly. It wasn't until 1987 that a trial was held. Four white men were implicated in her death, but only Dwayne Archie Johnson would be sentenced. He served 10 years in prison for second-degree murder and was paroled. The Osborne family had hoped that Helen Betty would return to them, a teacher or a nurse, an inspiration to others on the reserve. She did serve as an inspiration and a warning. In the year 2000, Helen Betty's family received a formal apology on behalf of the province for failing to properly investigate her murder. Helen Betty Osborne's brother, 42-year-old Kelvin Osborne, was stabbed and beaten to death in his Winnipeg apartment in March of 2008. His killer was charged and sentenced to life in prison. In the spring of 2003, another of Claudette's cousins, 16-year-old Felicia Solomon Osborne, vanished. Pieces of her dismembered body were found in the Red River. No one has ever been charged in her murder. 
Matthew Bushby misses his fiancée, and he is raising their children. He moved away from the city, which was filled with painful memories. Their children are old enough to ask and remember and wonder what became of their mother. Isaiah, the young son of Claudette Osborne, told his father that he hopes to be a pilot one day so he can fly across the province looking for his mother. There are photos of Claudette Osborne on our website. Also on the website is a link to a map that shows the missing or murdered Aboriginal women around the Winnipeg area. When you see the number of women and teens who were killed or vanished, it is startling. I encourage you to go to the website and take a look. I want to close this episode with a sobering statistic. As of 2010, the Native Women's Association of Canada has recorded information for 582 cases of missing and murdered Aboriginal women. 88% of these women left behind children. This has been seven years, so this is... How do you cope with that? Day by day. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, I've tried to move forward, and it's just... It's very difficult when you don't know what's happened. What do you say to the children? Um, I I usually say that uh, if mom could come home, she would. And the only thing I can think of is, you know, some bad people have done something to her to have her not be able to come home. We talk about her every day. Her birthday, uh, we always make a cake and her favorite foods. The kids know pretty much all about her. Um, I, I instilled what I know of their mom in them so they know as much as they can, you know. What's your best memory of Claudette? I think it would be uh, her laugh, holding my hand, telling me how much she loved me. Thank you for listening to the Already Gone podcast. You can subscribe to the Already Gone podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. Visit our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I welcome your feedback suggestions for episodes, and reviews. As this is a new podcast, I appreciate your patience and understanding as we find our footing. Thank you for listening. Be safe.
loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. 